0: morning. You can have a seat. Uh, so glad uh, that you guys are here today. Uh, today, uh, we are wrapping up Joseph, uh, but uh, more than that, we're actually wrapping up Genesis. Uh, so, those of you that have been around, we've been in this kind of four year journey, uh, January to Easter, kind of working our way uh, through the book of Genesis. And you just think about uh, four years ago, you, you know, what, what you were up to. Some of you didn't have kids. and and now you do. Uh, Some of you uh, uh, had hair and now you don't, (laughs) right? We had an election, a pandemic, you know, we've gained weight, we've lost weight. We've done all sorts of things, right? Over the last four years and Genesis, I feel like uh, as we kind of went into a pandemic and a uh, kind of a difficult election cycle and some racial discord in our nation, I don't know about you, I feel like Genesis has served us so well uh, dur- during, during those eras of time to just look at how things have changed, but in a way they really haven't too. Um, and, and Genesis has really served us well as we've studied it together. And uh, today's the last Sunday of it, not, not to bum you, out. I know it doesn't bum you, out. it's okay, I get it. Um, I am a little bummed. Uh, it's like the, the end of a, a thing for me. So um, next Sunday, uh, we're going to start a new series that's going to take us to Easter. Uh, it's called Contrast. And uh, the, um, the idea of this series is that throughout the book of Luke, one of the things Luke loves to do in a single story is he loves to contrast two different ways of thinking and living. And the idea of it is kind of you get to choose. right? You get to choose how you're going to live. You get to choose what type of person you're going to be. You get to choose what path you're going to follow. And Luke sets that up nicely. Um, later on my social media page this week, I'm going to post... Uh, some links to a couple friends of mine that have already been in this series for a little while. And if you want to go listen to their sermons, I would love for you to do that. Uh, And um, uh, if you go to week one of their series, that's what I will be preaching on this Sunday. And uh, so you can kind of begin to prepare your heart and your mind uh, for those messages. And so, uh, hey, let's uh, get into this and uh, let's wrap up uh, the book of Genesis together, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace, and um, we uh, thank you for this book of Genesis that when you, uh, we think about all the changes in, in our lives uh, from four years ago until now, and just all the differences, uh, everything we've just been through as a nation, um, we're grateful for this book. I, I really mean what I said. that I feel like this book has really helped us and really served us through some difficult and dark times, and, and so we're, we're grateful that you gave it to us as a gift. And uh, may we continue to digest your word uh, in difficult times. And may we continue to learn everything uh, that you want us to learn. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. My uh, daughter, Lila, is five years old. And she will tell you that perhaps the greatest movie of all time is the movie Frozen. Uh, That there is something about... My son loved it too. But there is something about the movie Frozen uh, that little girls just love and digest. And uh, she, she's always loved it, uh, and and will watch it as often as our family will allow uh, from a mental health standpoint. Um, you, know, we're like, you know, we we got, to, we got to take a break on Frozen. Dad's not going to make it. Um, and uh, so we, we, we love the movie. We, we really do. But if you know it at all, you know, the, the movie is about these two uh, sisters. They're princesses, and... Uh, A place called Arendelle and one of them is Elsa and one of them is Anna and Elsa is born with this kind of magical freezing power and when they're just little girls playing around the house she would uh, make snow and make places to slide and all that and and accidentally while they're playing one time as sisters she kind of strikes her sister's head with one of these ice rays and her sister gets very sick. Her parents take her uh, to this tribe of trolls and the troll's end up healing Anna, but one of the ways that they heal her is by removing the ice, but also removing any memories that she has of her sister's power. And so Anna is going to go forward and she won't remember that her sister has these powers at all. And so her parents, Elsa's parents, decide the best thing to do is to kind of lock Elsa away from everybody, from the community, from her sister, just for the safety of everyone involved. And so she kind of goes into quarantine and In the meantime, the parents kind of die in a tragic accident, and it's just the girls left in this kingdom. And uh, Anna has no memory of Elsa's power, and they're just kind of living in this castle separately, uh, apart from one another. And Elsa ends up living as a recluse in her bedroom, and Anna kind of ends up with this kind of desperate need for relationship because she's lived alone her whole life. And and, and the story kind of goes on from, from there. And as the story unfolds, you quickly realize you can see the story from both of their perspectives. You can see the story from Anna's perspective. She has no idea why her sister has rejected her. She's left to assume. She's left to become angry. Uh, She's left to become desperate for affection, uh, which leads her into a huge amount of trouble with Hans from the Southern Isle. right? But option number two is you can very quickly see it from Elsa's perspective. She loves her sister very much. She doesn't want to hurt her or harm her in any way. And so she self-quarantines herself in order to keep her sister safe. It's just a story. Do not read a political statement or a pandemic statement into that last sentence. (laughs) You can see it from both of their perspectives. And almost every story you could watch, I just chose Frozen because I've seen it a bazillion times and felt like I could tell the story easily from the stage. But you could read almost any story that way. You can hear every story from the differing perspectives of the characters that lived it. And Joseph is the same way. There is a way to read the story of Joseph. And we've done quite a bit of this in, in this series. There's a way to read the story of Joseph in kind of a moralistic way. This is an approach that says, all right, as we examine Joseph and we examine his life, there are certain lessons that we can learn to make our life better. So as we've studied Joseph, there are leadership lessons. From Joseph, we can learn how to forgive. Uh, From Joseph, we can learn the dangers of favoritism in our family. We can learn with how to deal with temptation. We can deal with family issues. We can prepare, uh, learn how to prepare for a famine that comes for us all. There are a ton of lessons you can learn just just digesting the life of Joseph, and and we've done a ton of that, but here's the deal. I think we would be doing the story of Joseph a huge disservice if we did not view it from another perspective as well. There's something that's kind of uh, wrong about just digesting a story with the perspective of Joseph, how can you serve me? How can you make my family better? How can you make my financials better? How can you make my job better? There's something that's improper about that, although some of it to do is okay, and we've done some of it. But we miss something when we don't view it from another perspective. And so today's the sermon, we're going to look at it from that other perspective. And that other perspective is called a Christological perspective. There's the moralistic perspective, which we've done a bunch of. Now we're going to do it from the Christological perspective. And that says one of the things that the Bible is trying to do, beginning to end, one of the things the Bible is trying to do is point us to Christ. So that we can know Him and put our faith in Him and worship Him, and that as you know, anyone that's put their life, in, given their life to Christ, you know that your whole life is changed when you do that. The decisions that you make, the love that you experience, the power that you receive uh, from the resurrected Christ—everything. Changes and even more than just trying to teach us a moralistic lesson about this is how you prepare for famine, this is how you overcome temptation, this is how you save for the future. Even more than a moralistic lesson, the story of Joseph is trying to point us to Christ. And it does it in a really special and unique way because ultimately it's not Joseph that's going to point us to Christ, but one of his brothers. And this idea of the Christological approach, it goes all the way back to the the, the beginning of Genesis. But even more specifically, once sin entered the world, it becomes the story of the rest of the book of Genesis, and specifically Abraham. You remember the second chunk of the series that we did? The first was just the origin story of how the world began, how sin entered the world. And then we moved into Abraham. And you remember how that story goes? God said to Abraham... Leave your country, your family, and your father's home for a land I will show you. And here's God's promises. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make you famous, and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I'll curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So here's the promise, right? That God is going to build a nation. That God is going to build a people. We know, looking back, that ultimately God's going to build the nation of Israel, but God's promise is that through that nation, the entire world is going to be blessed. And because we get to reverse-engineer the Bible, we get to see that ultimate blessing in a Christological way. We get to see it in Christ. And so the question of Genesis becomes, how is God going to do this? How is God going to build the nation and how is that nation going to become a blessing to the entire world? And if you understood the culture at the time that the Bible was written, you would think that, okay, God's going to start building families, and the primary way that God is going to work will be through the firstborn males of those families. Right? That's just how the culture worked. Right? So if you're a firstborn male like me, congratulations in the Old Testament. It right? doesn't mean much in our culture, but in the Old Testament, you were set up. right? Um, and, and so that, that typically that's how it would work in that culture, is the firstborn male would be the one that carried the inheritance, that carried the blessing. And you would think, just kind of understanding the culture, that that's how God is going to do it. But we've seen all throughout the book of Genesis that God operates in a slightly different way. All the way back toward the beginning, uh, Adam and Eve had uh, two sons. Cain was Eve's firstborn the firstborn male, Abel was the second. And when they became adults, Abel kept flocks and Cain grew crops and both brought an offering to the Lord. But it was the secondborn male's offering that was accepted and blessed. Abraham, uh, after God called him, uh, he uh, had a a child. His firstborn male child to Abraham, not Abraham and Sarah, but to Abraham was Ishmael. The son of Sarah's servant Hagar. Remember when Sarah was unable to conceive a child? uh, She kind of looked to her servant Hagar uh, to carry the child on her behalf. And it became 13 years after Ishmael's birth that God announced to Abraham and Sarah that they would become parents. Remember how the story went? Uh, Abraham fell face down and then he laughed. And he said to himself, Can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? We're old as dirt, right? That's the original Hebrew, right? And then he gets personal. Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? And so Abraham, she's like, Hey, hold up there. Leave me out of this. So Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael were acceptable to you. But God said, No, your wife Sarah will bear a son, And you will name him Isaac. And I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. And then quoted uh, by Paul in Romans 9-7. Through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. Not the firstborn. It was through the miraculous secondborn, Isaac... That the promise of God's covenant with Abraham would be fulfilled, the promise of blessing. Then Isaac has two sons. So Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has two two sons, twins. Esau is the firstborn, and Jacob is the younger. And it was the younger conniver, all you youngers, I got my eyes on you, right? It was the younger conniver who would become the father of Israel. And then Jacob ends up having a large family. Right? He ends up having uh, 12 sons. And let's pause there just for a minute. All right? I want to pause just for a second. Why does God work this way in the book of Genesis and throughout? That all of culture, it's like it's the firstborn male, will carry the inheritance, carry the blessing. And God's like, I think I'm going to work a little bit through the, the, the secondborn uh, in the book of Genesis. Why does he work this way? And I've seen a couple of theories that kind of lend to it. One is that God likes to work in a different way than the rest of culture. It's all throughout the Bible. That God doesn't work the way our culture works. He works in a different way. And so we always want to be on guard about this, right? That there is a way that seems proper. There is a way that seems right. There is a way that seems noble in our culture, but it's not necessarily God's way. And there's another reason why this might be. That this is God's kind of building this teaching that would later come into the New Testament, uh, this teaching that says, you know what? In my kingdom, the last will be first, and the first will be last. It's a reminder to us that God works in a different way to be sure, but God also works in a different order. So you would think that the richest person on the planet would be the most blessed person, but Jesus teaches, whoa, 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 blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You would think that the person that seems to be the most happiest, they are the most blessed. But Jesus says, whoa, 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 blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You would think that those who have the most are the most blessed. But Jesus taught, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes we are striving for a finish line that does not result in our ultimate joy. What if Jesus is teaching us throughout the New Testament, and it starts all the way back in the book of Genesis, what if the order of things is completely different than we think? That the accumulation of stuff, or money, or honor, or being first, what if it doesn't make us first at all? What if true life is found in serving? What if true life is found in loving? What if true life is found in laying down one's life? So let's get back to our question. How is God going to build this family and build this nation to bring about a blessing to the entire world? And God's going to use the entire family to build the nation, but through whom, which of these tribes, the sons become tribes, which of the tribes, through whom will the Messiah come? Which tribe? Through whom will the Savior come? Through whom will joy, hope, and peace come? So Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. Here they are on the screen for you, the 12 sons of Jacob. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's oldest child, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The two sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant girl, are Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant girl, our Gad and Asher, all these were born to him and Padan Aram. So the humanistic approach, as you read this text, the humanistic approach would say, well, the blessing's going to come through Reuben. He's the firstborn male. He's the one through whom Jesus will come. He's the firstborn of all the children. And as the story unfolds, because of some decisions that Reuben made that we didn't preach about in this series, right, he ends up disqualified from being able to do that. And then you would think, well, all right, so if it's not going to be Reuben, then it's going to be Joseph. He's the firstborn of Rachel, whom Jacob loved. And I think as the story unfolds, and I told the class this morning, this is way reading between the lines. So don't take this as gospel. But I think reading between the lines, I think Jacob believes it's Joseph. I think that's why he's the favorite son. He's treated very well. Everybody's out in the field. Joseph's home. He's checking in on them. I think Jacob believes that the promise is going to be fulfilled ultimately through Joseph. Right? Even after Joseph is discovered back from dead, it seems that Jacob, if you read uh, uh, Gen- uh, Genesis uh, 48, uh, you can see that there seems to be a belief that it's going to come through Joseph. Let me show you this text. Joseph took uh, them both. This is at the end. He's getting ready to bless Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Jacob, Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near to him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger And his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was firstborn. When Joseph saw that his father has laid his right hand on the head of Manasseh, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand and moved it from Ephraim's hand to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I was the youngest boy. I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And if you read that whole kind of chapter in in context, it seems, to me anyway, reading between the lines, that Jacob believes that they are going to carry the blessing forward, and it is through them that the blessing will come. Jacob, the younger, sees how this is going to play out, and he blesses the younger It's hard to tell for sure, but I I think he's preparing for the future. It's not going to happen that way. Spoiler alert. So here's the question. If it's not Joseph, and it's not Reuben, then who's it going to be? There's a clue in the text. I want to show it to you, right? Joseph is trying to figure out, if we go back in the story a little bit, Joseph is trying to figure out what to do with his brothers, right? They betrayed him. They sold him into slavery. They come to Egypt for grain. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And he doesn't know what to do. Right? I think that's clear from the text. He does not know what to do with them. And, and so he wants to know what happened to his brother Benjamin. Remember, Rachel has uh, two children, Joseph and Benjamin. All right? Those are her, her two kids. And he wants to know what happened to Benjamin. So he essentially sends them... Uh, back to, get, to bring Benjamin. And when Benjamin gets there, he hides a cup in Benjamin's bag. He accuses him of stealing it. He says, I'm going to send you guys back. I'm going to keep the brother uh, here with me. And I think he's orchestrating a way so that he can have his brother with him. And let me show you what happens next. We're going to see a clue in this text. Then Judah went up to him and said, All right, after he said all this, I'm going to keep Benjamin, now the only son of Jacob and Rachel that Rachel that Jacob loved. He's going to keep him back and uh, send everybody else home. And then Judah went up to him and said, pardon your servant, my lord. Let me speak a word to my lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, we have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. So in the absence of Joseph, Benjamin... Kind of becomes the favorite. And then you said to the servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, that boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, the father, our father will die. But you told your servants, unless the un- youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what you had said. And then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if the younger brother is with us, Will we go? We cannot see this man's face unless the younger brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me and I, said he is surely, uh, and I said he has surely been torn to pieces and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, If the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with this boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all of my life. Now then, Please let your servant remain here as my lord's slave, underline this phrase, in place of the boy. And let the boy return to his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not see, do not let me see the misery that would come to my father. See it? Jesus is from the tribe and the line of Judah. And this is the tell. This is the clue. That Judah offers himself in place of his younger brother. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus would come back and he would do the same thing. He would offer himself in our place. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus joyfully and willingly came and offered himself in our place, just like Judah did all those years ago. He paid for our sins. He took our place. And this clue is meant, if you can reverse engineer the Bible, it's kind of a dangerous thing to do. But if you can do it, this is the clue that we are meant to see. oh, I see Christ in the story. Judah says, If I don't bring Benjamin back, my father will die. Take me in his place. Let me be a slave. Let me serve you in this way. Let me take the place of my younger brother. And this is the gospel. This is the pointing arrow to Jesus of the New Testament, the one who came from the line and the tribe of Judah. And he saw us in our sin. And he saw that the wages of those sin is death. And he said to the father, Let me take their place. Let me go and take their place. Let me be their substitute. Let me stand in for them. I will receive the death that they deserve, and I will take their place from the cross. It's the gospel way back in the book of Genesis that Judah says, and and boy, I didn't even preach on the first story of Judah in the book of Genesis. It is nasty. I was like, I love my people, and I like my job. I'm not preaching on that story. He's come a long way. That's what I'll say about Judah. He has come a long way. And he says, If Benjamin doesn't come home, my father will die. If if, if Benjamin does not come home, my father will die. Let me stay here in his place. It's the gospel. You say, why? why Judah? There's one kind of clue here. There's actually another clue in the story that I want to show you that kind of points us to, to Jesus, right? There's, a, there's a, another quality surrounding why I think God ultimately chose Judah and it involved his mother. All right, let me show you what is happening. You may remember his mother, Leah, um, that it says about Jacob that he loved Rachel, direct quote from the Bible, he loved Rachel, Leah had weak eyes. Uh, kind of a weird way to... yeah. He, he, just, he loved Rachel. He didn't love Leah for whatever uh, combination of, of reasons. And so they struggled in their marriage. And so I want to show you what came about with Judah's birth that I think gives us a clue as to why it's Judah that ultimately is chosen. All right, here's the chronicle of how Leah gave birth to her kids. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son and ha- named him Reuben. Because she said, Adonai and I have seen my affliction, and now look. surely my husband will love me now." It's so painful to read this. And then she came pregnant again and gave birth to a son, and said, "For Ed and I heard that I am hated, and so he will give me this one. He has given me this one also, and so she named him Simeon. And then she became pregnant again and gave birth to a son and said, now this time my husband will join himself to me because I've given birth to three sons for him. And for this reason, she named him Leah. She's consumed in her plight. She's consumed in her pain. She's consumed in this bad marriage. And then she became pregnant again and gave birth to a son. Look at what she says this time. This time I praise Adonai. No qualifier. This time, I praise Adonai. And for this reason, she named him Judah. And then, she stopped having children. Leah got to this spot where her faith became beyond what's going to happen with Jacob. What can I do to get him to love me? What, what What can I do in this difficult marriage? The sins committed against me. And she got to this point where she said, no matter what, I'll praise No matter what, I'll worship. No matter what, I'll be faithful. And I think God rewarded her for that mindset. And I think years and years later, a Messiah would come not from the household of Rachel. A Messiah came from the household of Leah to a son born to her. And God, I believe, is rewarding her. And so then you finally understand that no matter what is going on with Jacob, you know, Jacob, as you know, Jacob was a knucklehead. Original language translation, I promise you. That was a knucklehead. Difficult marriage. Abusive tendency. All, all of that. He just, he, he was really terrible to her. And she comes to this point and she says, all right, no matter what, I'm going to stand and I'm going to worship and I'm going to be faithful. And I'm going to do what God has called me to do. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus would come, like I said, from a son born to Leah. And he exhibits this trait. That despite incredible obstacles and sins committed against him and great difficulty, Jesus is faithful to his calling. He praised the Father and he set an example for us. You see, you and I, we're not, probably don't come from Leah's direct line, but you and I are born again in Christ. And so you and I, we can live this example out by his grace and through his power. You and I can live this life of faithfulness, obedience, and praise, even in difficult circumstances. Because we have his Holy Spirit. We have his example, we have his teachings, we have his people. So despite what's been done to us, and I would guess if we went around this room, there would be a lot of things that have been done to us. Despite what's been done to us, despite the sins committed against us, despite the enormous difficult odds that we face every single day in our life, we can say, like Leah, and later like Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit, I will stand and worship. I will be faithful. I will walk this path nobly. We can walk as she walked. It took her a long time to get there. And it might take you and I a long time to get there. But we can exhibit this quality of faithfulness. Because it's when she finally did, like God said, You're going to give birth to a son, Judah. You won't have any more kids. You're going to give birth to Judah. And years and years later, the entire world is going to be offered salvation and grace because of your act of obedience here. He so said, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to walk true. I'm going to worship despite very difficult odds. And so a lot of life sometimes you might feel like a victim. You might feel like a victim because of a sin or a hurt or a lie or a gossip, whatever the case may be. And you say, man, I have been victimized by this person. And here's the lie that we can believe. And every single person in this room, you've probably been victimized by somebody's sin, right? I think we all have that. That's a human quality, some more than others. But it's a human quality that we've all at times been the victim of someone's sin. And here's the lie that you can believe. The lie that you can believe is that there is nothing I can do. There is nothing that I am do. I am forced to live in a land called victimhood. And in this land called victimhood, there is anger. And in this land called victimhood, there is this thing called entitlement. And in this land called victimhood, there's this thing of being stuck. And when someone sins against you, as the story of Genesis is full of Leah and later Joseph, the whole story is about people that have been victimized by other people's behaviors, words, and actions. And it is easy to begin to adopt this as an identity that I am a victim and there is nothing I can do. And Leah reminds us, and Joseph reminds us, that there is not, it is not true that there is nothing you can do. There is another land that is different from victimhood. And there is a land called victory. And in this land, there are plenty of things you can do. In this land called victory, despite what was done to you, you can praise You can say, even though this was done to me, even though the sin was committed against me, I am going to praise God. I can't control them, I can't control their behavior, but I will praise. I will serve others. I will persevere. I will love. I will grow. I will overcome. I will forgive. I will be faithful. There is plenty you can do. But it involves us making the decision that Leah made. And say, I don't want to live in this land land called victim anymore. I'm tired of the anger of it. I'm tired of the entitlement of it. I'm tired of being stuck over here. And it is a conscious decision to say, in Christ, the one who overcame the grave can overcome my obstacles as well. So in Christ, I am no longer a victim. In Christ, I'm living in victory. And when you make that decision to, to change the land that you're living in, all of these attributes become fl- flowing out, just like it did for Joseph and just like it did for Leah. All of these attributes of, oh, now that I'm living over here, now I praise, I serve, I persevere, I love, I grow, I forgive, I overcome. And the Bible says, not only is this possible, but your life is blessed because of it. The Bible, you know what the Bible says about you in Christ through the whole power of the Holy Spirit? It does not say you are an overcomer. You know what it says? You are more than an overcomer. So if you feel like Leah or you feel like Joseph, I know I didn't really preach on Joseph today, but if you ever feel like either of these people and man, I have been sinned against Steve, my compassion goes to you. Me too. I've been hurt. I've been lied to. you know, whatever kind of list of things you have, I have been hurt by their sin. I would encourage you to not wear that as your identity. That your identity is in Christ. You are not who they say you are. You are who Christ says you are. We sang about it earlier. You are who, I am who he says that I am. And in Christ, you can overcome and you can move from living in a land called victim to living in a land called victory and i want it for you i want it for you and i want it for me but here's what i learned after a long time of pastoral ministry i can't want it for you more than you want it for you as my grandfather used to say that dog won't hunt i can't i want it for you so bad For in Christ, for you to move and change the land that you've been living in from victim to victory. But I can't want it more than you want it. But I promise you, in Christ, if you want it, if you're like, I'm tired of the anger, I'm tired of the bitterness, I'm tired of the entitlement, I'm tired of feelings. If you feel that in your core, in Christ, you are not just an overcomer, you are more than an overcomer, and you can change lanes. Today, you can change lanes. And say, in Christ, I am going to walk in victory. I'm going to be in my church, and I am, despite what was done, I'm going to praise. I'm not just going to demand I be served because of what was done. I'm going to actually sometimes serve others. I'm going to persevere. When I have a bad day, I'm not giving up. I'm going to adopt love, not hate, as my MO and ideology. I'm going to grow. I'm not ever going to be stuck again. I'm going to overcome, and I'm going to forgive. And it's not going to happen. You can change lanes this morning, but those things are not going to happen this morning. You can see with Leah, she had a son. Maybe my husband will love me now. Son number one. Son number two. Maybe, next, maybe it's now. Son number three. Maybe it's now. And Jacob just repeatedly did not treat her well. Finally, she gives birth to the son Judah. says, this time, I praise Edna. This time, I praise. I'm not going to see myself, even though I have been sinned against, I'm not going to see myself as a victim. I'm going to see myself as a victor. And you can see what a beautiful thing it became. It's true for you and it's true for me. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that in him, we are not just overcomers. We're more than overcomers. And there have been sins committed against us in this room. Actions taken, lies spread, gossip that progressed. Things are done. And I, I hope not a single ear in this room heard me belittling any of that. I, don't, I know the pain is real. But I also know from personal experience what it's like to live in a land called victimhood. And I know the anger that grows there. I know the entitlement that grows there. I know the stuckness that takes place there. And I want to see us as a people move from feeling like a victim, even though we were sinned against, to feeling like in you we have the victory. So we praise, despite our circumstances, we serve, we persevere, we love, we grow, we overcome, we forgive, because our victory is in you. On our own, we cannot do this. It would be even crazy to imply it. It would be crazy to even imply it. But in you, the same power that rose Christ Jesus from the dead is at work in us. And so in you, we can have the victory, and we do have the victory in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. We're going to receive communion together, this act of grace that reminds us of the victory that we have in Christ. And so as we close out this series, I want us just to receive communion together and to just, if I can use this word, just bask for a minute in his grace. And say, man, I want want victory. Whatever you're facing, whatever that looks like, whatever sin's been committed against you, to say, man, I want victory over it. They hurt me. I don't want to continue to hurt myself again and again and again. God, I want the victory. I want to be able to praise you. I want to be able to serve and forgive and overcome and grow. I'm tired of being stuck. I promise you, if you want the victory, Christ will give you the victory. Because the same power that rose him from the dead is it working you? And this is our time to remember it, right? Not just as an abstract idea, but as an internal belief, right? Not just something you heard a preacher say on a Sunday morning, but I believe what he said this morning from that pulpit. I believe it is true for me. That's a different type of belief. That yeah, I conceptually believe that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, I conceptually believe, I want you to internalize it. That what he talked about, it is a promise not just for them, not just for him, not just for her, it is a promise for me, in my situation with the person that wronged me and hurt me. It's for me. And so I can overcome. I can forgive. I can love. I can live in this much better land, in my opinion, called victory. And so we're going to receive communion together, and you can just hold those and Bask in his grace and the power made perfect in your weakness and mine. And then I'll come back up in just a minute and we'll receive it together as a church family because we want you to remember this is not a solo mission either, right? He's given us his words in the Bible, his example in the Gospels, and his church in the pews next to you. And so I can promise you if you walked around this room and you said, man, I am really struggling with anger, I'm really struggling with feeling like a victim, person after person, me too. The victory is yours, and the victory is mine in Christ Jesus. Let's claim it together. But it involves us being together. So we like to receive it all together as a church family to remind, that, hey, me too. Let's pray for one another. Let's encourage one another, and let's help one another. His body given for you. His blood poured out. Let me ask you. I'm going to ask for just an audible response as we get ready to close this morning. Do you believe through the cross that your sins are forgiven? Yes, Yes, they are. Do you believe the power of the resurrection is for you? Don't believe the cross without believing in the resurrection. They are both true. The power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in you and at work in me and at work in us. You do not have to live in a land called victim. You can land in a land, live in a land called victory in Christ, and it is a much better place to live, despite what's been done to us. We stand. Let's sing one last song.